Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, it's been quite a year. The last nine months and COVID-19. Really, we need to see, I think, better collaboration across government structures, across our counties, our states, and across the nation to make sure that we're all working together, communicating the same messages. We'll recap how Georgia responded to the pandemic and how the coronavirus vaccines are also shots of optimism in slowing the spread and saving lives. Stay around for those conversations. In related news, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp announced Tuesday the Georgia World Congress Center in downtown Atlanta will once again be used as a medical facility. Sixty patients will be housed at the Congress Center through January. And while hospital beds are decreasing, newly confirmed cases continue to rise. At the time of this broadcast, 518,902 COVID-19 cases in total have now been confirmed in Georgia. 39,836 people have been hospitalized, and of those, 7,103 are ICU admissions. And since the state began recording these numbers way back in March, 9,503 deaths have been confirmed. This is always according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. We're back in a moment. This is Closer Look. I think the biggest question is, is it going to come here? Is it going to come here? And, you know, if I knew the answer to that question, I would, I would uh, you know, be playing in Vegas. But what can I, I can say in the U.S., we've had 12 patients so far. There has not been transmission from those patients to other people in the United States. I think CDC and the authorities are doing a lot. But the most important thing is we need public health preparedness. Public health preparedness, in my mind, is like preparing for fires. I hope I don't have a fire in my house, but I have a fire alarm and we have extinguishers, and if they have a fire department. So if there's a fire, we can respond. That's what public health response should be. Mm-hmm. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. That was from February 7th of this year. My first conversation with Emory Infectious Disease Specialist Dr. Carlos Del Rio about what was then we called the coronavirus. And since then, well, a lot has happened. The number of cases of COVID-19 outside China has increased 13-fold. And the number of affected countries has tripled. We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. As you just heard on NPR, 
The World Health Organization is declaring COVID-19, the outbreak, a pandemic. Meanwhile, officials with the Georgia Department of Public Health are reporting five new presumptive positive cases of COVID-19. Now, this announcement coming late yesterday evening. How much worse we'll get will depend on our ability to do two things, to contain the influx of in people who are infected coming from the outside and the ability to contain and mitigate within our own country. Bottom line, it's going to get worse. Tomorrow, I will sign a statewide shelter-in-place order, which will go into effect on Friday and run through April 13, 2020. The hit came from all directions, and it just in a matter of hours, things just started crumbling. There's about 15 million restaurant employees nationwide, and we're all struggling. But the independent restaurants, you know, are like us, I think are getting hit the hardest. I say to myself, when I get out of here, and I make it out of here, I will do everything in my power to make sure other people don't go through what I went through as a patient and a healthcare worker. Today, we are announcing plans to incrementally and safely reopen sectors of our economy. Given the favorable data, enhanced testing, and approval of our healthcare professionals. All of the experts that I'm hear hearing from are saying that to help slow the spread, we need to mandate masks. And that's what we're gonna do in Atlanta and hopefully it will help some. I lost my grandfather to COVID and part of the saddest thing in this is that fear and that reality that folks have been isolated. And so my mother was very afraid of going to the hospital. And so I am just, as I said, I feel like we have this ray of hope that we didn't have even a few months ago, an excitement and, and a real re-energized uh, sense that we, we will get through this and we will get through this together and we will be able to keep people healthy and save lives. Quite a timeline. Now that last voice you heard was Dr. Kathleen Toomey receiving her coronavirus vaccine last week. Now, although inoculations are underway across the nation and, of course, here in Georgia, cases and hospitalizations continue to rise in the U.S., but this much is clear. The pandemic is far from over. And on today's edition of Closer Look, we take a look back throughout the year in coronavirus news and ask, what have we learned? And what's potentially in store for 2021. It's only fitting to begin today's special with WABE health reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? Sam Whitehead. Sam, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. Sure, Rose. Good, as always, to be with you. When you listened, Sam, when we took you back down memory lane, what went through your mind? I mean, the thing that really jumped out to me um, was that first clip we heard from Dr. Carlos Del Rio talking about, what, a dozen cases uh, that we knew about at the time. I mean, numbers like that seem quaint now. Um, you know, we, we've had more than 300,000 people now die from COVID-19 that we know of here in the U.S., uh, some 1.6 million at least around the world. And so just to think, oh, well, we're, you know, we have 12 cases in the U.S., it just really kind of puts the numbers we're seeing now, mm -hmm. um, which are only going to keep growing um, in, in some real shocking perspective. Hmm. Sam, this was your second year as our health reporter. I, we talked about this before because I don't know how much planning you can be prepared for in terms of reporting on a pandemic. But through your lens as a journalist covering this, what's it been like? 
I mean, you know, this is the first time, Rose, in, in my career as a reporter, not just focusing on health, where it's been just painfully obvious what the one story is that I should be covering. Mm-hmm. Um, it's often the process of reporting. A lot of time has been figuring out what's the thing to look at, what's the thing to pay attention to. And this year, there was no question. And, and that, in some ways, um, while it's been exhausting in a lot of ways to cover the same thing for such a long period of time, it's also clarifying, right? Mm-hmm. This is obviously the biggest story right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also become very obvious that one reporter, I can't cover it all. Y'all can't cover it all on Closer Look. You know, NPR can't cover it all. This is really a team effort in a way um, that I've never experienced before as a reporter. Um, You know, here in Atlanta, too, we've seen different outlets build on each other's coverage as we've covered the state's response. Um, And I think that that teaches me a really valuable lesson about I don't have to be the one doing it all because there are other people out there covering different aspects of it. And then the final thing, um, and I think this is going to continue to play out over the next, you know, many number of years is that this is a story that is going to keep wanting to be told even after this is over, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we're not only going to be covering the lingering effects of this pandemic, um, probably the largest event to happen in any of our lives, I think is maybe fair to say, but we're also going to be taking time, I think, in the future to look back at our state's response. You know, we heard some tape in there from Governor Kemp, Dr. Kathleen Toomey, who heads the State Department of Public Health. The state has really made it hard to get public records during this pandemic. It's been very hard to really take a fine tooth comb and go over what the state's been doing. Those stories will be told eventually though. And so part of this too is just patience and knowing that the state's response, even if we can't go as deep as we want to right now, those stories will be written. Sam, let me ask you this. And actually we've been talking about data collecting throughout this year, but we've seen some changes to the way the Georgia Department of Public Health reports newly confirmed cases. Um, such as through the COVID-19 dashboard. And there have been some recent additions to that, correct? Uh, There have been. Probably the most notable recent addition was the state started sharing the number of um, antigen tests that were uh, logging positive results here in the state. So antigen tests are rapid tests. They are very quick to return results, but they're less accurate. And for a long time, the state wasn't publishing uh, the number of positive antigen tests that they were recording each day. Mm-hmm. They started doing that in early November. They're still not rolling that into their total number of confirmed cases, however. And so that has been really notable because the state's confirmed numbers are have been high enough on their own as of late. We've seen a very notable spike in infections after the Thanksgiving holiday. Um, But if you factor in these antigen cases, these Mm -hmm. antigen positives, those numbers get even larger. Mm. Um, So it's it's interesting that the state is, you know, making these numbers public, but still kind of putting an asterisk uh, next to them. Sam, as a journalist covering this, has there been a metric that you would have liked to seen added earlier or one that still needs to be added that would help you in your reporting on this? You know, Rose, I think the thing that everyone's focused on now is vaccines, right? We're starting to see them rolled out here in the state, and there's already been some clamoring for more information from the state of Georgia about 
how many vaccines does the state receive? How many people have received them? I think that's a you know an interesting thing to want to look at. Um, I think it's going to become more urgent to get that information once these vaccines are more widely available to the general public. Right now, these are going to a select group of people, and they kind of know that they're first in line for a vaccine, healthcare workers, people in long-term care facilities. But I think that's something that the closer these vaccines get to the general public, that will be good information to know. You know, I think early on, and this is still data that we could get more granular on, is, is just a look at the kind of ethnic and racial breakdowns of who the pandemic has hit the hardest. Mm-hmm. Um, it took a lot of clamoring and a lot of kind of um, cajoling from reporters and the public to get the state to start collecting and sharing uh, ethnic and demographic data um, about, you know, cases, uh, deaths, things like that. And, you know, we, the more this, the longer this pandemic goes on, the more we have seen this kind of, uh, you know, disproportionate impact on uh, people of color. And, you know, maybe had we, known that a little bit earlier on, um, more more could have been done. There would have been more pressure on public officials to do something about it. And you think back to when testing was beginning, there was a challenge at the beginning of the pandemic was the testing capacity. That has changed. A lot of progress has been made there. Progress has been made with the capacity, but you know, uh, if you build it, they won't necessarily come. Mm. So a recent White House task force report from early in December said that diagnostic testing in Georgia had dropped something like 43 percent, which is kind of nuts considering how active the pandemic is here in the state. And this is an issue that Georgia has struggled with for a long time. They struggled with it over the summer when cases were spiking. State officials say they have the capacity and that people just aren't using it. And, and And you might think, oh, so what? People aren't getting tested. Testing doesn't just describe the pandemic as it's happening, right? Testing Mm -hmm. can be a proactive tool. And the White House has also really pushed the state in these reports to get more proactive about testing because testing catches asymptomatic people, which is we know a substantial portion of those who transmit this disease. And if you don't test people, you can't get them to isolate and you can't contact trace, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, capacity is there maybe, but there hasn't been enough engagement with that testing, I feel, and I think public health experts would agree with me, to have it be a truly effective tool to help us slow the spread. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by WABE's health reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands, Sam Whitehead, on this special edition of Closer Look as we look back on 2020. Sam, speaking of the number of COVID-19 cases, we've seen We experienced, rather, the waves of the virus throughout the year. Remember, I kept asking you, Sam, what wave are we in? Are we in wave one? Are we in wave two? But we know there was a major spike during the summer. Um, And we also know there was a spike this past Thanksgiving. We expecting another wave, too, after Christmas, you think? Is that what health experts are saying? Yes. The general consensus is that If we look at what's happened so far, we have seen these surges follow not too long after holidays. We saw that over the summer with the 4th of July and and Labor Day. Again, this was not just in Georgia. This was in different parts of the country. Mm -hmm. We have seen kind of nationwide this surge that we're kind of in the middle of still um, that public health experts uh, link back to Thanksgiving. And Christmas and New Year's are right around the corner. It's an extended holidays period. And Health officials are worried, quite frankly, Rose. And, you know, I I think the thing about waves and asking about waves, 
I had someone recently, a, a professor at, at Georgia Tech, whose name is Joshua Whites, who does a lot of modeling around the pandemic, made this point, and I think it's a very important one. Just because there was a previous wave doesn't mean there won't be one in the future. We're so far away from being anywhere near kind of levels of herd immunity in the population where a wave sweeps through and all of a sudden enough people have gotten it that no one, no one else has to worry about anymore that, yes, waves are going to keep happening um, until we reach a level where enough people have gotten this thing or we have tamped it down through other measures, vaccination, mm -hmm. or even, you know, the things that we know, Rose, wearing a mask, avoiding gatherings, you know, closing social spaces, those kinds of things. Now, you and I can have a whole nother conversation about the politics of all this, but we're going to stick to the science. <laughs> You know, Sam, in more recent news, we are seeing, obviously, the first doses of the COVID-19 vaccine being distributed to healthcare workers uh, throughout the country and, of course, here in Georgia. Through your lens, though, based on what you just said about the wave, do you think that will have an impact on people's, I don't know, you, I'm not asking you to be Dr. Phil, you can't get inside people's mind, but do you think that will have an impact on people's behavior because all oh, vaccines out there so I can maybe loosen up a little bit? What do you think? You know, Rose, the way that both public health experts and state officials have been talking, I think there is a concern that the presence of vaccines will encourage people to let their guard down. And from the way that these officials and experts have been talking, that is worrying to them. Mm. It is so important, I think, to stress to people right now how limited our quantities of vaccine uh, are here in, in the United States. Um, how long it will take, how complex the process will be to actually get this to people like you and me, other people in the general public. Um, a vaccine, public health experts have said so many times, is one tool in a larger toolkit. You know, Dr. Robert Redfield, who leads the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, has said, and this was prior to the vaccines, that masks are the best tool we have to slow the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and so vaccines are coming, and health experts and officials are optimistic about that. We heard that tape from Dr. Toomey not too long ago. Pick your metaphor. It's 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 a light at the end of the tunnel is the one that people use a lot, right? Um, but it's still gonna be a long time before we're anywhere close to being out of that tunnel. And in the meantime, interventions that we know work, wearing masks, avoiding gatherings, um, those are going to be so crucial as the pandemic continues to really surge here in the country. You mentioned Dr. Robert Redfield. I want to shift for a moment because the CDC has been a major entity, obviously, in all of this. But there will be new leadership and Dr. Rochelle Walensky, who will now head the CDC under President-elect Joe Biden's administration. Uh, what do we know about her, Sam? You know, Rose, the, the thing that kind of sticks out to me um, is uh, Dr. Walensky apparently has a pretty deep background in the world of HIV research. And, you know, we started off this segment by hearing from Dr. Carlos Del Rio. Um, that's his background. Uh, but, you know, a, a number of our kind of leading voices here in Atlanta um, who have really been, uh, you know, guiding the public through this pandemic are people who have backgrounds in HIV research, right? Like we have to understand that COVID in the same way um, that HIV was, is, is a novel disease that we're learning more and more about each day. So, so that's the one thing that kind of jumps out to me. Um, another thing, too, is, is we've already seen Dr. Walensky has a pretty strong social media game, yeah. <laughs> um, which might not seem like the most important thing. Um, but, you know, it matters to have the person who will soon be 
one of our nation's top public health officials, be savvy, you know, with, with social media, because that's how so many people consume information. And if we think about the challenges that are, you know, our country is going to face with getting enough people to accept a vaccine, encouraging people to be more strict about wearing masks, uh, things like that, you know, having someone um, who seems to be very active and, and somewhat savvy on social media, I think is going to be crucial. And finally, Sam, as we wrap up heading into the new year, what coronavirus news are you keeping an eye on? What's on your radar? Do you want do you want an optimistic note, Rose, or do you want a pessimistic note? <laughs> oh, Sam Whitehead. Uh, <laughs> can you give me both? <laughs> sure. I mean, you know, I think, Rose, it is hard to not look around right now and just. So let me let me start here. Mm-hmm. Um we're in a bad way right now in the country. And it is hard not to look at our numbers here in Georgia, look at statistics across the country and be nervous. Our hospitals across the country are fuller than they've ever been. We thought the summer was rough here in Georgia, but I do worry um, and we're seeing early indications that we are in the middle of a surge that is worse Mm -hmm. with the potential to get worse um, with the coming holidays. And so into the new year, things I'm looking at, you know, how bad do things have to get here in Georgia uh, for our state leaders to further shut things down, to do things like restrict elective surgeries at hospitals, to do things like open the overflow uh, care space that's been previously used at the Georgia World Congress Center. I don't think those things are out of the question. Um, you know, I'm not going to bet that they will or won't happen. Um, but I think that if we look at the current tra- trajectory of the pandemic, it wouldn't surprise me if some of those things happen. It's just, I wonder at what point, mm-hmm. right? So the pandemic is going to continue to make a lot of people sick and it's going to continue to kill a lot of people. And I think that not only at the state level, um, you know, just to pull way out, it's this question of, how bad does this ultimately have to get before things change, before people change their personal behavior, um, before state and national leaders take uh, take different approaches. Mm. So that's the one thing. I think, Rose, we are, though, we do have the potential in, in 20, for 2021 to be a very different looking year than 2020. We have vaccines that are out and being distributed, and even though they are being distributed in limited numbers, the you know medical experts who I talk to regularly often just remark on how, even in their wildest dreams, having vaccines that are as shown to be as effective as the ones that we've seen upwards of 90% Mm -hmm. that even in their wildest dreams, they wouldn't have thought of that. And so that is, I think a little glimmer of, of hope that we can take into the new year that we're going to have to be patient. It's going to be a real challenge to get this vaccine to the people who need it, not just the people who have good access to healthcare, but, but truly to be, equitable equitable about distributing this. That is no small challenge. Um, but I, I think that just the, the, the fact that we're here and moving into 2021 with these vaccines, um, barring some major un, un, unforeseen complication or, or consequence, I think that is, that is a hopeful note to end the year on. Hmm. Sam Whitehead, WABE's health reporter, host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands?, Sam, thank you for your continued reporting throughout this year. We really appreciate it. I do hope you get some well-deserved rest as the year comes to a close. Thank you, Rose. I appreciate it.
Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. As we continue to recap COVID-19 and this year, the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center has been a crucial source of reliable data. Now, this online COVID-19 portal provides the latest information by region and outlines critical trends. Now, I first spoke with Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo, Associate Professor and Senior Scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, and Beth Blauer, Executive Director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Civic Impact, back in July. And in a recent conversation just this week, they talked about some of the initial challenges in collecting state data and also what's improved. Let's talk about the states for a moment because here in Georgia, and I want to be fair because Georgia has come a long way since July and the information that it is collecting and providing. They still have some critics out there. Georgia has really enhanced its online portal in terms of being able to give what we consider, we give these numbers every day, what we consider to be credible information now. Yeah, somebody else, you might get a different answer. But in terms of the states overall, has the data that they've been collecting or the way they've been collecting, has that improved at all? Yeah, I mean, I think that we're seeing really improved data practices. So, you know, early on, it was um, not reliable. We States were updating data not on a daily basis. Sometimes they would not report any data for several days and we'd see these big surges in data. We're seeing a lot of leveling out on the data and the data quality. Um, I think it's also really important to highlight that the that HHS and the CDC have also really upped their data game. And so we're seeing really great granular data on hospitalizations. We're seeing new case data coming from the federal government is so encouraging, um, you know, that we're finally seeing some leadership out of the federal government. I think one of the things that Jennifer and I think a lot about um, are standards and really wishing that there was more language coming out of the um, uh, federal health infrastructure that it would allow us to understand, you know, what should be reported and how it should re- and how it should be reported. Let's dissect that a little further. Is there an assessment that you all wish you could get more from the states, whether it's in terms of demographics? I mean, we keep hearing that black and Hispanic folks are still at a disproportionate rate in terms of not only contracting the virus, but having negative health outcomes. So is there, in terms of demographics, is there another assessment that you all wish you could get from the states? That's a really important area that we um, would love to see a lot more data available um, for us to look at, um, you know, Beth and her team, I think really deserve credit for kind of taking the lead and getting states to um, increasingly report the racial and ethnic breakdown of cases, uh, which is really important for us to keep track on to so we can understand which communities are, are being affected and which may be less affected and try to understand why that is so that we can um, craft 
control strategies that are targeted um, for the communities and appropriate for the communities that are most affected. Um, but we don't see those data broken down in other areas that we track. So for instance, on testing, um, so we know that in order to be counted as a case in the first place, for those disparities to show up in our case data, people have to get tested. Mm -hmm. And if there are disparities in who gets tested and the availability of testing and the ability of people to access testing, we're going to see disparities, you know, not the full set of disparities not fully captured in the data, the case data that we have. And so that's one thing that we've been trying to look at, but that's not really something that most states uh, release. They don't really release the kind of racial ethnic breakdown of who gets tested. We've been trying to look at it from different ways by looking at testing patterns in in counties and then kind of overlay the racial ethnic um, demographics of those counties. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it is um, quite telling. We do see some states where there are huge disparities where, um, you know, um, very high case fatality rates, but very low patterns of testing. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's unfortunate because, you know, first of all, not only do we want to make sure that people are getting tested so that we know who's infected and who's not so that we can try to interrupt the chain of transmission. But if you don't get tested and you don't know that you have COVID, you may not know to seek medical care when mm -hmm. medical care could very well save your life. So having that breakdown and seeing if there are problems in and holes in where people are able to access testing and how they're able to access testing is really important. And that's just one area where we have seen insufficient data to help us um, answer those questions and, in my view, improve our response greatly. Director Blauer, you want to add anything to that? Yeah, and I think that, you know, one of the encouraging signs um, that I've seen uh, on this front is that the states who are releasing vaccine data, so the data around who's receiving vaccines, um, several of them are already sort of gearing up to be able to break that down, uh, break down the who's getting the vaccine and the racial breakdown and the ethnic breakdown of um, recipients. And I think that that's a signal that the message has been heard and that the data no longer can be siloed in this way. I think testing data is still going to struggle in this area, and we've seen real challenges um, being able to understand the testing landscape because of the inability um, for uh, the lab data to be broken down in ways that we can do this sort of deep analysis. And I hope uh, that they're going to be course correcting when it comes to vaccines. Well, let's talk about uh, what is available. And for our listeners who may not be aware, briefly just take them through, navigate through the site. What information is there? And then how often is it updated? So we um, announced on Friday that we are now going to be sharing the publicly available data around vaccine dissemination. So if you go to the CRC, the, the Coronavirus Resource Center site, um, you can click on the vaccine vertical on the site and you'll see a map of the United States. The states that are colored in in blue are those that are sharing that data uh, publicly. When you click on those states, it'll take you to their region page where you can see all of the local data at the state level. And you'll see a number that reflects um, how many people have received that vaccine. In some instances, you'll also see another number, which is the number that is the most recent, so a daily number. Um, and then you'll see that aggregated number. Um, the data is uh, updated every day. Um, we are doing this very manually right now. So um, there are, um, as we establish a more uh, routinized way to collect this information, we're scanning um, the states. And so we've had states that have appealed to us and say, hey, we're just about to add this data. Can you um, uh, make sure that we get included in your resource? Here's the preliminary information. We have states that just went out very early on and put the data up, which was great. Um, uh, but again, 
a word of caution, mm -hmm. there are still very limited, um, uh, there's still very limited guidance on how this data should be expressed and how, what format it should be provided in uh, coming from the federal government. And so I think that what we're seeing again is states taking very different approaches in their own public uh, displays of this information. And so um, again, we're, we're really um, emphasizing the need for more standardization around how data is shared. Um, but in the meantime, it does look like states are taking a page out of some of the lessons that they've learned over the course of the pandemic um, and have gotten this data out quite quickly and efficiently. So vaccine, I think, is a really exciting kind of new area of focus for the site. And it'll be really important um, for people to gauge just sort of when they're going to be next on the list, um, but also how quickly we're able to roll out vaccines and um, protect America and, uh, you know, get to that point where we start to maybe worry less about this, this virus. I, I think um, we don't envision anytime soon stopping, ha having to stop thinking about it, but I think having a, a vaccine that can prevent people from becoming seriously ill is, is a remarkable accomplishment. Um, so that's really exciting. You know, we continue to track trends in cases, not just um, in the U.S., but also globally and, um, you know, seeing how the U.S. Is, is faring compared to other countries. Sort of spoiler, we still are leading in terms of having the largest epidemic in the world. Yeah. But it's been really interesting to see some trends where um, other countries over the summer uh, had been doing quite well and now are, you know, in very large peaks of, of infections, possibly even bigger than they were in the spring. Uh, when everybody was struggling. So it's been interesting to see those trends. And then we continue, of course, to track testing to understand, um, are we casting a wide enough net to find infections, which is mm -hmm. the first step in the process of trying to slow down the number of people who are getting sick and, and getting infected and winding up in hospitals and, and dying. And, um, you know, having uh, now been tracking testing as long as we've had, we've been able to see some interesting trends. You know, we mm -hmm. notice as of late, the speed with which we're increasing testing has slowed, uh, which is um, a bit of a worrisome trend. Hopefully that will pick back up now that we've, you know, um, moved away from the Thanksgiving holiday where there was a real big drop, um, but we're about to head into some more holidays. So anyway, um, we have a lot of, of things that we're keeping tabs on that give us a sense of, of how well the country we're doing um, and where areas where we could do better. And that entire conversation can be found online at wabe.org slash closer look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. As mentioned earlier on today's program, it has been nine months since the outbreak of COVID-19 infections was officially declared a pandemic by the World Health Organization. Now, initially, the first two deaths were linked to senior living facilities in Washington State here in the U.S. That was in March. But then months later, State health officials in Santa Clara, California, reported some individuals had died of COVID-19 weeks earlier than in March. There was so much more to learn about this virus. Now, back on March 2nd, I spoke with Dr. Anish Mehta. He's the chief of infectious disease services at Emory University Hospital. And I asked him this. What do you make of all this, doctor? How rapidly it spread. I mean, we were talking a little bit about it, yeah. but now... It's come to the U.S. and we're I talking think about the, every hour. I think the last 72 hours has been a little bit concerning for all of us just because we're seeing a, a little more spread in the United States. Fortunately, we have great public health officials that are trying to contain it. And if we can contain it, then I think it won't be as impactful as 
we're hoping, but we need to be prepared. And so all the communities around the United States have been and are going to continue to prepare as, along with healthcare systems. Wow. If we can contain it and we need to be prepared. Hmm. Well, now we continue today's program. Looking back at this year in coronavirus news, Dr. Mehta joins us once again. Dr. Mehta, thank you for taking the time. It's an honor to be on the program again with you. What do you make of what you said? You were on point. You said, look, if we can contain it, now we'll get to that a little bit later, and (laughs) preparation. I'll ask you this as we get started. What do you make of it now? Well, Rose, I don't think any of us could have predicted how overwhelming and how devastating to the global community, the American community, and in our communities here in Georgia, the COVID-19 pandemic has been. Um, as we talked about previously, uh, we really needed to try to contain it. And I think we, in many ways, made good efforts to, but obviously, the pandemic overwhelmed our containment measures, and we very quickly moved to mitigation. Um, and as you and I talked about during our previous talk, um, I can't believe it's already been over nine months, mm. um, but we, we talked about how every state needed to come up with their own plans because we don't have a national plan. Um, and I think in many ways we did well here in Georgia, and I think we're going to learn um, how we can do better next time. You know, our conversation today is supposed to be about reflecting on this past year in COVID-19. But at the time of this segment, now comes concerns out of the UK about a mutant coronavirus strain with, quote, significantly faster transmission rates. I guess this was to be expected because folks like you know, this was actually identified back in, in September. There's always concerns about any type of virus, but what do you want folks to know about this mutant coronavirus strain that we're hearing about now? Rose, I, I understand everyone's concern about this new strain of coronavirus. And as you mentioned, it's it's not actually all that new. But what's new is that we're seeing so much of it in a, in a certain area in the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. It does have some ability to be transmitted more readily and potentially infect uh, more easily. Um, But we do see other strains circulating as well, and so we'll learn more. Um, But the really important message that I've been trying to convey is that all the same things that we're doing, uh, the three W's, washing our hands, wearing a mask, watching our distance, will very much help prevent the infection of all of these strains. Mm -hmm. And so we just need to continue to employ those methods and work together to protect each other. Is it too early to talk about whether or not it's known? Can this strain cause more serious symptoms? That may sound like a simplistic question to someone like you, but to regular folks like us, you know, we want to know. That's a great question, actually. Um, many of these strains um, may have the potential to cause worse symptoms, and some of them may be more mild. Uh, we're still learning about each one of these different strains that we've detected Mm -hmm. as far as how easily they are to transmit and to give from person to person and as well as how bad the disease that you get from it is it's still too early to know for sure um, but there is active research in that area and another big question how will this coronavirus strain respond to the vaccines it's still too early to try to understand that? I think we are building some data uh, through the NIH and through our colleagues in the United Kingdom. But so far, it appears that the vaccines work really well against all the strains. That spike protein, which the vaccines help our body to make, 
and learn our immune system learns to defend against that spike protein that seems to be pretty constant so pretty similar between these strains and therefore the vaccines will continue to work well for the next several months uh, we strongly believe so now let's travel back in time nine months ago sort of touched on it a moment ago but i want you to take it further if you can in your assessment of how the nation from a public health crisis standpoint how they rolled out a response, what worked and what could have been done a little bit better, you think? Uh, That's something that we continuously reflect on, Rose. Um, Mm -hmm. I would want to say that what has really worked well is our healthcare communities coming together, working together to stand up against this pandemic for our patients and for our community. I have not seen teamwork so sustained and maintained and, and just the strong will of our healthcare providers to take care of patients and and to return back to work safely. Um, That is a true triumph of the American healthcare system um, and and very much built on the people within the system. We've also seen our communities, many of our communities come together and particularly try to take care of the most vulnerable. As we know that our, our elderly population, our people with chronic illnesses such as heart disease, diabetes, they're most vulnerable to this pandemic, this infection. And people have been doing a really good job of trying to protect them. I think we will continue to learn and and hopefully improve on on sort of our um, more broad structures, our governmental structures, our public health structures that need to be invested in uh, to protect us against uh, these sort of infections and pandemics in the future. And really, we need to see, I think, better collaboration across uh, government structures against uh, across our counties, our states, and across the nation to make sure that we're all working together, communicating the same messages so that everybody builds confidence in, in the mechanisms we're employing to protect each other. Dr. Meadow, if there had been a nationwide shutdown as opposed to each state, implementing its own measures. And I know scientists like to, as they say, stay in their lane or, and you don't want to make it about politics, but had that been the case, could we have saved so many lives? Rose, I, I do believe that if we have a national plan and, and we have some really great infrastructure for a national plan through the CDC and other public health agencies, that we could have better contained and mitigated prevented the spread of uh, COVID-19. And I think we will learn from the lessons of this um, year to hopefully build those infrastructures better. We we are a nation of several 50 states plus many territories, Mm -hmm. but we are one nation. And it is really important for us to face challenges both internally and externally, including pandemics as one nation. Did you feel that on some occasions there was a disconnect with the science, giving us all the data and information that we needed being politicized or it was being discounted even? And for someone like you, when you see that, regardless of who it comes from, an elected official or, as I would say, Uncle Bob or your neighbor on next door, when you would see or hear this narrative that was discounting the work of what folks like you were doing with this pandemic, what went through your mind? Rose, that uh, is a 
a very good question. Um, I think it was very hard for many of us in healthcare, in science, to watch the messaging which sort of eroded our fellow uh, community members in, in, in the confidence in the science. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have very good science. And in, in 12 months, we've learned so much about the COVID-19 pandemic, the virus, how we protect each other, and, and now about vaccines and therapies uh, against the infection. But it was difficult to watch career scientists, people who have been fighting before COVID-19 to protect us against infections, to protect the community, and to see that um, their messages uh, being torn apart. Um, But what I'm really hopeful for is sort of that transition that we're seeing now. And very much um, we're seeing our community, the media, the scientific community all coming together and really moving forward with good science and applying that science to our communities to protect our people and to get people healthy uh, again. And so I'm very optimistic um, that the the confidence in the science is coming back and we'll continue to be able to produce good science for our community. Back in March, I asked you about the likelihood of a vaccine being developed Take a listen to this. Here's, here's what you told me. Fortunately, technology is moving rapidly forward, and so we can develop vaccines quicker than we could even five years ago. However, it will take several more weeks. There is a vaccine in trial before we get data to really know if it's a good candidate to move forward or not. In the meantime, we're also looking at uh, new medications um, and starting here in the United States, a clinical trial uh, to look at uh, a new medication to see if it's beneficial for COVID-19 patients. Well, you talked about technology and science. Well, look, technology and science has brought us to this point as inoculations are underway in this nation. Let's start with the vaccine. Were you surprised that we were able to get something developed so quickly within a year? So, Rose, when we talked before, um, I, I was trying to sort of temper my optimism about the vaccine and how quickly they could be developed. Um, The mRNA technology was something we were talking a lot about in the Mm -hmm. scientific community. And it was truly the hope that uh, once you get the sequence, which we had at that point in time, that we could build a vaccine very quickly and then roll it out into clinical trials. Mm -hmm. So I'm not very surprised that we have one, two, hopefully three soon um, vaccines available to us to use against um, COVID-19. But what I'm just super enthusiastic and surprised about is how effective these vaccines are. We're talking over 90% efficacy, Mm -hmm. which that amount of reduction of risk to all of us is just tremendous. Mm -hmm. Um, And I can tell you, I've been a vaccine um, advocate, a vaccine scientist, a vaccine researcher for years. Um, But when this vaccine came both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine came to us. I was excited. And then when I got my email to give me the opportunity to get this vaccine, um, I can't tell you how excited it was. And then when I, um, I have to really, sorry, I'm, I'm still pretty emotional about it. It, it okay. has been just a tremendous effort on so many people to make this what it is today. And then when I walked into our facility here at Emory Healthcare, which I have to compliment our, our leadership for just having the most amazing uh, vaccination campaign in clinic I've ever seen. Um, 
when I walked in the door, I had the opportunity to receive the vaccine from my friend, my colleague, Jill Morgan, who was the nurse who with together that we admitted the first patient with Ebola um, back in 2014 together. Mm -hmm. And then she gave me my COVID vaccine. Um, I can't tell you what a tremendous day that was for me and my family. Um, and it really is a triumph of science. The stories behind these two vaccines are tremendous and the impact is going to be absolutely wonderful for all of our community. Well, let's talk about treatment though. What can you share with our listeners in terms of, you know, I know back in October, and I can't remember who actually it was, but I spoke to someone and said, well, you know, there's not a single treatment right now for folks who may show either early signs or mild symptoms of COVID-19. Where are we right now on that front, Dr. Mehta? I think we are so far ahead of where we were back in March and April as far as treatment. I think the bedrock of treatment is just good primary care and good clinical care. And we're seeing our clinics uh, taking care of patients before they come to the hospital so well. And in the hospital, our sort of treatment plans have, have matured so much that our mortality rates of patients coming in the hospital have gone down a lot. They're still not where we'd want them to mm -hmm. be. We're still seeing too many people, unfortunately, get sick and pass away, but we're definitely improved in just how we care for the patients. And we also have better medications. Mm -hmm. I think one of the really nice scientific advancements is to develop these antibodies that we can give people. And now we have two that have emergency use authorization that we can give to patients once they show signs of COVID, but are not sick enough to be in the hospital to hopefully prevent them from coming into the hospital. Mm. So I think that's a really big advancement. And then for our patients in the hospital, we have treatments um, such as dexamethasone, a steroid, which dampens down the inflammation. We have remdesivir, which is an antiviral medication mm. that just recently got approved by the FDA to sort of bring down the level of the virus in your body prevent you from progressing and allow your body to sort of catch up and kick out the virus. So Dr. Mehta, can you understand someone listening and you have painted this very promising picture on what's been taking place, but still we hear thousands of people are dying every day. I think, can you understand someone saying you're painting this great picture, but why are we still hearing about so many thousands of people dying a day. New infections is one thing, but people dying. Why are we still hearing this, these high numbers still? Rose, it is, it is still very dramatic on the amount of patients that are dying in, in our hospitals and, and unfortunately in their homes. Um, yeah, um, I think while we can make advances in how we treat patients, the most important thing is preventing people from getting sick. We, we would like to see less patients with COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we have the biggest opportunity to continue to work on these public health measures. Again, our, watching our distance, wearing a mask, washing our hands, avoiding crowds when you can. These are how we protect our most vulnerable members of our community from getting COVID-19. And as far as we can get with science and advancement, these basic public health measures are the most impactful at preventing death, preventing COVID-19, and really getting us back to the life that we all want to live um, together. 
even with new cases continuing to climb, hospitalizations continue to increase, and deaths. So, Dr. Mehta, as we wrap up, what does the other side of the pandemic look like for this nation through your lens? Rose, I'm not sure that we'll ever go back to where we were in 2019, but I think maybe in some ways that's a good thing. I think we will learn that we need to work together with our public health officials and, and our scientists and our healthcare facilities to really be better prepared um, for pandemics in the future. But I think we'll also learn that we can protect each other. We are once again a community um, that are interdependent on each other. We're not isolated from each other. We shouldn't be isolated from each other. And it's together that we'll continue to move forward and get to a better place uh, where we can continue to do all the things that we want to do just a little more safely than we have in the past. You know, Dr. Mehta, the last time you were here in studio earlier in the year and you spoke to the young son of a colleague here to reassure him about the virus as they were planning a family trip, I got to tell you, you really put him at ease, but you really put him at ease. And you had talked about concerns for your own family and your COVID-19 packs and (laughs) things like that. How have you been doing through all of this in your family? No, Rose, thank you for asking that question. I'm very blessed to have an amazing family and a saint of a wife who has really kept our family moving forward. Um, it has been a hard year. Our kids have been out of school for a long periods of time. Learning has changed. Our family dynamics have changed. Our work life has changed. But really, we have uh, found that together we can make it through it. We have connected with our extended family around the world by different means than we have before. And we are you know, t- trying to take care of our neighbors and they're taking care of us. And I think, again, that's the optimism I see through all of this is that we will be stronger as a community together because we've learned, um, as my family has learned, that we, we aren't alone and we can't be alone. We need to do this together. Dr. Anesh Mehta is associate professor in the Division of Infectious Disease at Emory University School of Medicine and chief of Infectious Disease Services at Emory University Hospital. Dr. Mehta, thank you and all of your colleagues and all of your peers for the work that you've all done this year. And thank you for taking the time as usual. Thank you, Rose. It's an honor. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Kanavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash closer look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.